Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 9, and 32 through 35. It's found on page four of your bulletin. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better for them to marry than to burn with passion. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? God, we bring um, our deepest desires to you right now. We're hungry and thirsty people, as we sang earlier, believing that you are the living water, that you're the bread of life, uh, that your love is better than life. Would you come and uh, prove yourself to us? In Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been working through a series on how God's Spirit teaches us to live, and we've been doing that across several different areas, contentment, uh, leadership. I want to move us now into a couple weeks of relationship status, this week looking at the idea of singleness, and then in a couple weeks looking at the idea of marriage. Now, the most recent stats that I could come up with us uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is that over half Americans are single. That's quite a change. Over half of Americans are single. Forbes magazine in 2015 reported that Washington, D.C. was populated 70% single. That may not be a surprise to you. An earlier uh, stat, and I was trying to see if it's changed at all, was that the city proper, D.C. proper, is actually two to one women to men. And maybe some of you women are going, oh yeah, you don't need to check the stats. I know that's true. Um, but some uh, encouraging news, a year earlier, 2014, Men's Health ranked D.C. the place of most eligible women. So guys, this might be your best shot ever <laughs> to find someone. Uh, so a little bit about the stats, right? But we know there are a great number of single people, but no single is alike. People are single for different reasons. Some are single because they really are content in their particular stage. Others uh, would like to be married but haven't found someone yet. Uh, there are some people that are single because they're divorced, others because they've lost their spouse. And singleness looks different at different ages and stages. To be single when you're 22 is different than being single when you're 32 or when you're 52. Different concerns. If you're young and single, it may be your student loans. If you're older and single, it might be the health of your parents. And how we experience singleness has to do with our expectations as well. 
If you're someone that's always dreamed and hoped you'd be married and have a family and you're not, well, that's going to be more difficult for you than someone that maybe didn't think that to be in their future. Just as God calls some people to a hard marriage, he'll call some people to a hard singleness. But the question before us as a community of faith here, and what I want to explore is, how does God's spirit lead us to think about singleness in a different way? That's what the text before us places, um, uh, the question put before us by the text. And I'd like to look at it through just two broad, you know, categories or titles, and that is the perspective. What sort of perspective does God's Spirit give us? And what sort of benefits and blessings is the Scripture talking about with respect to being single? So to begin with perspective, there have been basically two dominant perspectives about how people view singleness in our culture and throughout, I would say, near history, a long history. The first, we'd say, is the traditional perspective, which sees singleness as a problem to be solved, uh, that there's shame attached with being single. In the first century, one rabbi said, any man who has no wife is no proper man. And the Talmud went further when it said, the man who is not married at 20 is living in sin. Now, in the time of Rome, ancient Rome, the empire actually fined widows who didn't remarry because they felt they were being a burden on society. But you see, the church's response was precisely the opposite. They began to care and provide for their widows. Different perspective. And then we have what I'll just call the modern perspective, where singleness can be seen as mostly license. It gives me freedom, freedom to move where I want, to have the schedule that I want, date who I want, hook up with who I want. There's just freedom is the thing to be valued. If you're a fan of watching the reruns of shows like Friends or Seinfeld, you'll see that's exactly the culture that's being uh, promoted, those shows basically from the 90s. Now, the Christian faith, again, takes us away from that perspective and reminds us of some fundamental things. First of all, that our worth is not rooted in our marital status, but in our creational status. Both the traditional and the modern view miss that, that our worth is rooted in our creational status, not our marital status, because we're made in the likeness and image of God. But the second thing is that singleness is neither a curse or just a license. The Apostle Paul reminds us in this passage, it's a gift and a calling. That's the biblical perspective. Singleness is a gift and a calling. Now, Paul begins the passage by counseling married people that they have freedom to abstain from sexual relations for spiritual reasons. That's the concession that he started with. Now, I say this concession. And then he says, I wish that all were as, I wish all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. Now, when you hear about the gift of singleness, some of you might be like, yeah, it is a gift. Others might be, where can I return this gift? I don't want it. You know, I never asked for it. And uh, who gave it to me to begin with? Um, Well, a couple of ways we need to think about gift. First of all, gift doesn't mean easy. Gift doesn't mean easy. You may have a gift of being a teacher. I'm sure you have a lot of days that ain't easy. You may have a gift where you're able to help people. There's probably a lot of days where you're tired. I have a gift. 
I hope, of being a pastor. But there's a lot of days it's hard for me, and there's even days where I go, I don't want to do this. Just because you have a gift doesn't mean it's easy. The second thing is, a gift doesn't immediately mean that you understand it, okay? It's not like a light has come into many people's room and said, I want you to be single. In fact, the words of John Stott, the late theologian who lived into his 90s single, I think are really wise. He says this, in spite of rumors to the contrary, I have never taken a solemn vow or heroic decision to remain single. On the contrary, during my 20s and 30s, like most people, I was expecting to marry one day. In fact, during this period, I twice began to develop a relationship with a lady who I thought might be God's choice of life partner for me. But when the time came to make a decision, I can best explain it by saying that I lacked an assurance from God that he meant me to go forward. So in the case of John Stott, he would say after he prayed, he thought, you know, he he really didn't know what God's destiny was. And the truth is, none of us really know. We live in the station of our life day to day. You might think, well, God has called me to singleness forever, and in a week from now, you meet someone and you marry them. Or you may be happily married and you find out by God's providence, you're not in a year from now. All of us are called to live by faith in whatever station God brings us into, which leads to the third thing, and that is providence or circumstance. If you go to Matthew 19, Jesus gives his teaching on marriage, and he introduces this concept of the eunuch. Okay, if you don't know what that means, a eunuch was someone that didn't have capacity for sexual relations. Now, it could have been because they were castrated as a child, a baby. It could have been they were enslaved and castrated. But Jesus also introduces a different category, what he would say is a willing eunuch for the kingdom. Someone that forgoes that sexual romantic relationship because of their faith. And here, I can think of many people. Maybe a woman who could easily marry someone outside of her faith, someone that doesn't share her faith and be married and have kids, but she doesn't because she believes God has not called her or commanded her to do it. Or I can think of someone who experiences sexual attraction outside of the commands of Scripture, whether that be same-sex attraction or attraction for someone who you're not married to. Right? There's many ways that God calls people to, uh, by faith, move ahead. This is the distinctive. Wesley Hill, who really writes wonderfully on this topic, he's a pastor. Uh, A couple years in the Washington Post, he had an op-ed, and he was writing about this issue, and this is what he said. Jesus recognizes that some of us will be asked to shoulder burdens that we wouldn't have wanted if we'd been given an option. He treats such burden-bearing as a normal part of life in the kingdom of God. As author Eve Tushnet often puts it, the sacrifices you want to make aren't always the only sacrifices God wants. This is really the Christian life, what all of us are called to. But one big sacrifice that singleness requires is to not be engaged in sexual intimacy. And uh, in our culture, that sounds heretical and absurd because our culture firmly believes that sex is essential for happiness. But that's not true. Sex is not essential for happiness. Intimacy is essential for happiness. There's a lot of people that can have sex but no intimacy. You can live without marriage. The one thing you can't live without is friendship. 
the intimacy of friendship. And here we have the example of the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus had 12 friends that were in his friendship circle. He had three that he was tighter with. He had one he was particularly close with, the Apostle John. And at the worst moment of his life in the garden, right before he's crucified, he doesn't want his mother to be there or his biological brother or sister. He wants his friends to be with him. The Apostle Paul rarely traveled without his friends. His friends were his family, both men and women. And in fact, the one person he called his son in the faith was not his biological son, someone he, he wasn't related to. And yet he said, this is like a son to me, the most intimate relationship. We're talking about soul-to-soul friendship. And that's actually a phrase the Bible uses. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 13, it talks about friends as of your own soul. Friends as of your own soul. And the book of Proverbs, of course, goes on to describe that. I think one Old Testament example of those two friends would be Jonathan and David, who was said that they had a, a friendship and a love that went beyond romantic love. I've said this before, but our modern culture has no categories for that because we sexualize everything. So people began to say, well, Jonathan and David must be gay because they could not understand a soul-to-soul friendship that went even beyond romance. And what's that friendship look like briefly? Well, the book of Proverbs gives us many things. I'll mention three. One, close friendships. A soul-to-soul friendship is a close friendship. Wounds, or rather, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, closer than blood relative. Soul-to-soul friendship is constant friendship. A friend loves at all times. Soul-to-soul friendship is transparent friendship. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. These are the friendships that we long to have in our community, and I have witnessed many of them. You, uh, who have friendships that could be described as soul-to-soul friendships. But it's not just single people that need them. Married people need them as well. Marriage was never meant to be the, the relationship that basically, you know, sucks up everything in your life, every relational need in your life. And anybody that's married can tell you that. It's a particular calling. And so in the end, coming to background to see how the culture and the Bible differ, when Paul says that singleness is a gift, the word he actually uses in the Greek is charisma. You may have heard of charismatic gifts, which tend to be defined as things like speaking in tongues or prophecy, but actually all gifts from God are charismatic gifts because you know what it means? It means grace gift. And so Paul is saying your singleness is a grace gift from God to you. He means to give grace to you from your singleness and grace through you by your singleness. This leads us to a bigger perspective And that is the way that we understand singleness in the trajectory, the story unfolding in God's kingdom. In the Old Testament, marriage is the norm and singleness is rare. In the New Testament, marriage is still the norm, but singleness becomes elevated and unique. For example, in the Old Testament book of Genesis, the command was to multiply persons. That requires being married. In the New Testament, it's to multiply disciples. That doesn't require marriage. And what we understand is as we move and race toward the new heavens and new earth, that earthly marriage will be swallowed up in the love of God for his people. 
Earthly marriage is an analog, it's an illustration of the great love that God has for his bride, his people, Christ the groom. So that leads us to the second point of how do we understand the blessing of singleness and benefits. The first thing is, singleness offers unique grace. It models unique grace. Now, I've given you an extensive quote on the first page of your bulletin, and I, I, I just thought it was such a great quote, I had to include it, so if you want to look at it, I'm going to read it. This comes from Pastor Sam Alberry, who is a pastor who experiences same-sex attraction but lives as a celibate man and writes really eloquently and wonderfully about um, singleness. Singleness, like marriage, has a unique way of testifying to the gospel of grace. Jesus said there will be no marriage in the new creation. In that respect, we'll be like the angels, neither marrying nor being given in marriage. We will have the reality we will no longer need the signpost. By forgoing marriage now, singleness is a way of both anticipating this reality and testifying to its goodness. It's a way of saying this future reality is so certain that we can live according to it now. If marriage shows the shape of the gospel, singleness shows its sufficiency. It's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate, and that in Christ we possess what is. The consummation our sexual feelings long for can, if we let them, point us to a greater consummation to come. Celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point to us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for. I think that is um, a wise, wise quote he gives us. The rich grace that God intends for whatever stage a single person is. But I also think there's a word here to those Christians who are dating. The Bible has two categories when it comes to sexual uh, expression. Singleness, which uh, requires celibacy, and marriage, which allows and requires sexuality, uh, rather sex, within the bounds of a covenant. But the world has long since a third category, introduced a third category, and that is if you are dating someone or you have a significant other or you just feel like it, then you are permitted to engage in sex. But this is not the biblical perspective. This is not how the Bible understands the purpose of what sex is for. Paul says this when he goes, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. While a Christian who's dating w might show and likely will show physical affection beyond what a normal friendship would be, they are not permitted or called by God to engage in sexual expression because there's not a third category. And I'll talk about this when we move into marriage, but the whole idea of marriage is that, you know, we talk about signs of the covenant. The sign of the covenant of marriage isn't a ring, it's sex. So when people enter into the covenant, that seals the covenant. We'll get into that in a couple weeks. But here's the thing, the more Christians date like the world, it makes it very difficult for their single brothers and sisters to bear their call of celibacy because they're looking around. And so if you are a Christian and you're dating, I would ask you this question. Where are you bearing the burden of celibacy? 
Where are you bearing the burden in terms of your sexuality? That might change if you should get married. I know it's, in our day and age, it sounds crazy. You might be here out of the Christian faith and go, I knew this place was crazy, and now for sure. But I would even challenge you and say, don't run off. Don't run off. But think a little bit about the purpose and meaning of sexuality. So that's grace that it models. But let me hit two more things before we close. Uh, Devotion. This is another benefit or blessing that Paul talks about. He talks about the married person who is anxious about the relationships. As a married man, I can tell you that my primary priority relationally is a pretty small circle. I mean, the, the, the people that take up my prayers and my time and my money are going to be my family. This is part of the calling of marriage. And so I'm limited when it comes to a wider relationship pool. Now, as a pastor, vocationally, you know, I can come in there, and obviously I'm spending my days in relationships, so maybe I'm a little different in that sense. But for those that are single, you have freedom to invest in more relationships, invest in your career maybe that a marriage person can't. I remember a seminary professor saying this uh, when we were in seminary. He said... um, to uh, some of the married folk that had kids, he said, for some of you, it would be a sin not to get an A because you have the freedom and ability to. For others of you, it would be a sin to get an A because there are other commitments that God is calling you. Do we have a holistic view of calling in life? You know, career tends to suck it all up. A friendship, or rather a single person, can begin to say, well, you know, I have freedom to invest in kingdom causes that a married person may not be able to important kingdom causes, uh, issues of justice. Maybe it's tutoring a kid. Maybe it's working for the sanctity of life. Whatever it would be, or your career, using it in a way that you can put time in it that a married person can't. So these things, uh, the Bible would say, are benefits because the single person is anxious about the things of the Lord. And he mentions two different things for the man and woman. So, devotion is the second blessing, but lastly, legacy, believe it or not. Usually when we think of legacy or progeny, we think about the person that has a big family and has kids go for generations and generations. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, if you know it, the narrator and his guide visit heaven, and in that they encounter a ghost named Sarah Smith. And the narrator immediately understands that she is a person of importance, and this is what he writes because this person is surrounded by young men and women. Every young man or boy that met her, Sarah Smith, became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. That's really a beautiful vision of singleness. And I can tell you, I see it in this community, the spiritual mothers and fathers who don't have biological kids, aunts and uncles. My family has been blessed and changed by you, by single people that have invested in my kids and often can speak words and say things that I cannot say 
because God has called us to be a family of God. He's called us to be a spiritual community together. We all need each other. So just as, you know, married people need more than single people just to come in and do babysitting, right? Single people need to be included in a family to do more than just babysit, right? They need to have a sense of, all right, what is the family of God? But God has called the church to a unique vision of how we understand singleness. Uh, A burden, a blessing, but we're doing it together. This is how the Spirit leads us. Now, there's much more that we could talk about. Much more we could talk about uh, the call of singleness. It's robust, it's big, there's aches, there's pains, there's joy, there's fruit. But for now, maybe this is something we can focus on. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the way that you redeem things in the world, including our singleness, the things that you intend. Thank that you uh, comfort. Thank you that you uh, dwell near. Thank you that you gift and empower. And I pray for our single brothers and sisters in our community that you would encourage them for however long they are single until they see you. In Christ's name, amen.